Ephesians chapter 4. And if you need a Bible to follow along with us, just lift up your hand. And the ushers are already like swarms of Bible delivering <laughs> men. <laughs> yeah, I'm learning. The book of Ephesians breaks down, as you know by now, into three basic divisions. In chapters 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul tells us the wealth of the believer. 26 times highlighting everything that we have in, through, and because of Jesus Christ. Without any work or deserving on our part, just everything that we have, our wealth in Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then in chapters 4, 5, and the first half of 6, the second section of Ephesians is the walk of the believer. That is, how is it that we now order our lives in light of everything that He has done for us? And then finally from 6, 10 through the end, the warfare of the believer. The battle that we find ourselves in while we're still in this world. Now, last week we talked about what it means to walk. What does it mean to walk with the Lord? And in verse 1, we looked at how Paul said that his desire is that we should walk worthy of this calling that we have received. And we talked about the axios or the scale, that you put everything that he has done for us on one side of the scale, and on the other side you put the quality or the value of our commitment or our walk with him And if it's a worthy walk, then the two things should equal out. And we talked about the ridiculousness of that concept of of anything that, you know, we, our lives ever producing, even coming close to what he's done for us is completely absurd. It's impossible. It can't be done. But he's giving us these things. And as we move forward, before we begin talking about this walk and and not any longer defining what it is, but now actually looking at what are we to do, we cannot forget that our walk with Christ is always in response to our wealth in Christ. See, for years, I thought that my walk, that is, the way that I behave and the things that I do, were in some way earning me the wealth that if I read my Bible enough, that if I showed myself committed enough to prayer and to the things of God, that if I served in the church and and, and if I kept my, my, my mind and my hands clean and did what I was supposed to do, then I would be able to obtain favor and blessing from God. But when you live your life like that, it's a recipe for frustration, for discouragement and burnout. Because nothing we can ever do can ever earn even the slightest bit of God's favor. What Paul is telling us here is that the wealth that we have in Christ, the fact that we are accepted in the beloved and that we are blessed in heavenly places, that has nothing to do with anything that we do. It has to do with what he did. And we cannot forget as we move forward that God is the initiator in this relationship that we have with him. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a relationship where you have to be the initiator, the one that's always constantly reaching out and trying to invoke a response. 
But that can be an extremely high-pressured situation to be in, to be the initiator in a relationship. And if you carry that into a relationship with Christ, you're going to be frustrated. You will not enjoy your Christian walk. But what Paul is so carefully telling us is that our walk with Christ is not the initiation of us trying to get something from him, but rather we already have everything that he can give us. It's given to us at the first moment that we accept him as our savior. And our walk with him is our worthy response to everything that he has done. And I'm so thankful that it isn't up to us to try to figure out how we're to do it. Because when you recognize the love of God that's been given to you, And when you taste the goodness of God and the grace that you've received, you want to respond. It isn't the kind of a thing where I say, okay, well, I've gotten something and now it's time that I have to pay for it. He's here to collect. But no, no, no. When you taste the riches of his goodness, you have to respond. Your life is, is given to him. You recognize everything that he is and what he's done for you. And I'm so grateful that he tells us now what we're to do in response to everything that he has done. The walk of the believer. And so in this section of Ephesians, God is telling us how to respond to what he has done for us. And he tells us that we're to walk worthy. In fact, five times he uses this, or walk worthy, five times we're we're to walk in this section. He tells us to walk in unity. And then in verse 17, he tells us that we're to walk contrastingly. Not the way we used to or like the rest of the world is. In chapter 5, verse 2, he tells us that we're to walk in love. In chapter 5, verse 15, he tells us that we're to walk circumspectly. That is, soberly and wisely with discernment. And then finally, he tells us that we're to walk in victory in our lives. Now, in the passage that we have before us tonight, verses 2 through 16 of chapter 4, The Apostle Paul is telling us that part of our worthy response to what God has done for us is that we are to walk in unity. And Paul is going to talk to us tonight about the church. And this section of Ephesians is perhaps the most comprehensive instruction in all of the Bible on how a healthy church is to function. Now the example of a healthy church is seen throughout the book of Acts. But as far as instruction on how a healthy church is to function, it is here. This is the text on who we are and what we're to be about as the church of Jesus Christ. In many ways, you could say that the first ingredient in a worthy walk is to be a part of a healthy church. I shared with you last week that the human body has over 6,000 named parts. And that for a human body to be considered to be in health, it requires that all 6,000 of those parts are fulfilling their role in allowing us to function in health. Now, it's worthy of mention here as we talk about the church that Paul is not talking to church leaders. This text was not assigned to Timothy or to Titus or to the pastors that served with Paul or or, or to any church leader throughout any of the ages. But this passage of scripture was spoken to Christians, to everybody who is a part of the body of Christ, not just church leaders. Now, leaders have a significant part to play. 
But the church does not stand or fall based upon the strength of its leaders. It stands or falls based upon the strengths of the people that make up the body called the church. So what is the church? And what is the significance of our relationship with each other? And what is our role in the spiritual health of one another? Paul begins in verse 2 by dealing with our attitude. He tells us there, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. He tells us that in this body, this entity that is called the church, our attitude is to be one of humility. Now, humility is the antithesis of human nature. We are egocentric from birth. Humility was such a foreign concept in Paul's day that the Greek language didn't even have a word to express it. The definition of humility is to have a lowly estimation of yourself. That is the exact opposite of the way that we are born. We're watching our eight-month-old son kind of, you know, spring forth with a little bit of personality. And it's incredible how an eight-month-old can really believe in his heart of hearts that he is the center of the universe. I mean, we'll all be sitting there. There's, uh, there's five others of us there in the room, and nobody else is screaming and crying because we can't have another Cheerio. But yet he insists. And sometimes I look at him as he's throwing that fit, and as we sit there coming, I say, can't you see that the rest of us don't do that? But he can't understand that concept because his very base nature at the core of who he is is that he is what it's all about. Humility has no part in eight-month-old Riley. Now, the Bible never tells us that we're to lie. And the Bible never tells us that we're to pretend to be something that we're not. Therefore, if the Bible is telling us that we're to have a lowly estimation of ourselves... It must be because we ain't that great, you know. That what God sees when he looks at us is in stark contrast to what we think we really are. We're really not that important. We're really not that great. Now, the only way a person can truly see themselves for what they are is when they see themselves through the lens of the blood of Jesus and the cross of Christ. That's the only way that someone can really understand what they really are. You know, I think of all those people in the Bible, you know, even men of God. You think of Isaiah, who for five chapters, woe to you and woe to you, he would thunder out. But when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he saw himself in light of God's glory and grandeur and holiness, he could only say, woe is me. No longer could he concentrate on the faults of anybody else because he was put face to face with the fact that he was undone. A man of unclean lips that dwelt in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And it isn't until a person comes in contact with the risen Christ who is crucified and bled out for their sin personally that that person can then take their proper place and say, I am nothing but a sinner. And my position and my standing before God is by grace alone and not because of anything that is in me. It's a response of humility. Now, even once a person sees themselves through the lens of the blood and of the cross, that doesn't change their egocentric nature. We're still self-centered and we're still apt towards pride and to not operate within humility. 
But what that lens allows us to do is it allows us to yield ourselves to the Spirit's influence over our lives. We don't have to give in to that egocentric nature. We can yield, rather, to the person of Christ, the Spirit of Christ that lives within us. To the Philippians, the Apostle Paul wrote, chapter 2, verse 3. He said, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. In other words, Paul is saying, have such an honest and sober understanding of your true self and all of its deceitful wickedness that your natural recourse is to assume that the person you're talking to is less wicked than you. To esteem others as better than yourselves. And this can only be done when a person sees themselves in Christ and understands who they are in light of the cross. He says, with all lowliness. And then he goes on and he says, and meekness. Now, meekness is gentle strength. It's not weakness, as some would suppose, but it's strength in perfect control. About a week ago, I was in my kitchen at my house, and my little daughter, Sarah, was behind me. I was standing at the counter, and I didn't know that she was there. And I I was, you know, probably moving something from one side to the other. And as I turned around, I just turned at a regular pace, but my hip bumped little Sarah. And she is so petite. I mean, she weighs about four pounds, you know. And, and, And as soon as I hit her, I felt the energy just pulsate right through her. And she, boom, went right down to the floor. And I wasn't in a hurry. I wasn't, like, trying to do anything bad. It was just a a common thing. But I saw the look on her face as she looked up at me. You know, she wasn't hurt. Her feelings weren't hurt. It was this, this, it, it was this look as though she had just been knocked over by a horse, you know. <laughs> like, whoa, Dad, I didn't know you could do that, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and, and the look, it shocked me because, you know, she has, she's never needed to know how strong I am before. Because I don't lead her with my strength. I lead her, at least I want to lead her with love. And so, therefore, she's never had to, she's never had to know. She's never had to conceive and think of how strong I am because that's not the, the attitude that I have with her. And Paul is saying that that's to be our attitude with one another. It isn't about how much you know, how spiritually strong you are. But rather, it should be an expression and a manifestation of the love of Christ coming through you that influences others, not how much you know or how spiritually strong you are. It's an attitude of meekness. Now, If someone tried to harm Sarah, she would then find out how strong I am, you know. Patience, he says. He uses the word in the King James, long-suffering, which is the definition of patience. It means to suffer long. And that doesn't happen with people that we like. It isn't suffering when we're having to deal with someone that we get along with or we agree with or we generally dovetail nicely their personalities and ours, you know. But it's those people that are difficult, those people that grind on us. They're, you know, maybe what we would consider annoying. But we suffer long with them, Paul says. In light of how patient has God been with you? When you consider how annoying some of our attitudes and responses to God are, and yet he's so patient with us, isn't he? And it's with that same patience that we're to deal with each other. He says, forbearing. To forbear, I love this word because basically to forbear means to bear with someone before you have to bear with them. It's forbearance. 
which means that you already made up in your mind that you're going to bear with someone before they bother you. And, and that, that's a challenge, you know, but that's what he's saying, that that's how we're to deal with one another, is that we're to forbear one another in love. We're to be motivated in all of this by the love that God has had towards us. And you think about the humility of Christ who would wash his disciples' feet. The meekness of Jesus, though he had the power to walk on water, and literally all of the powers of the universe were at his disposal. And yet he functioned and operated as a servant, as one who served meekness. The patience of Christ as he would deal with his disciples on earth and how he deals with us in our lives now. And how he forbears. I'm so thankful that he forbears, that he already sees the error that's coming in my life. And yet he's already made up his mind that he's going to bear it even before it happens. And he calls us to deal the same way with one another. That we're to walk with lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And he moves then from our attitude to our endeavor in verse 3. He says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You may have in your translation the word preserve there in the place of keep. To preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, the fact that it is an endeavor and that it must be preserved or kept or held on to, the natural you know, conclusion that we would come to is that if it was left on its own, this concept of unity, if it was, if it was just something that we thought, well, this is just going to happen, that you're going to get all of these different people in this body of Christ from different nationalities, different backgrounds, different classes, different walks of life, different ages. And you're going to get them all in the same place and they're just going to agree on everything and there's going to be this unity. Paul says, no, 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 no. It's something that must be endeavored upon and it must be kept, held on to, preserved. Because if it's left to his own, it's going to dissipate. There's going to be factions and splinters and fighting and backbiting and it will be messy. But he says that we're to endeavor to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In John chapter 17, we have the last recorded prayer of Jesus before he went to the cross. It's a whole chapter long, and you can basically eavesdrop on his conversation with the Father prior to the crucifixion. And five times in John chapter 17, Jesus prayed for us that we would be one. That there would be unity amongst us. That there would be such a love that exists within those that call upon the name of Christ. That, that there would be nothing that could splinter us or faction us. There would be no divide because of race or because of age or because of background or because of personality or any of the other things that cause people to divide. But he prayed five times in one chapter that we would be one. I was having a conversation with a, a brother of not a, not you know a Christian brother he doesn't go to this church and this goes back uh, a little ways but he was talking to me about his marriage and he had some splintering going on you know he you know needless to say had uh, somewhat of a um, contentious situation at home on a consistent basis. And he was venting and talking about, you know, the battleground that it was in his home, that, that it didn't take long for, for once he arrived there for things to heat up and the, the, the words to exchange. And, and I was just listening and taking in what he said to me. And he turned to me and he said, how do you handle it when your wife, and I, ch I chuckled a little bit, 
And I said, you're, you're asking the wrong person. I said, you, you really uh, don't, you, you, you don't want to know about my, my home life. And he said, what do you mean I don't want to know about your home life? I said, my house is like a sanctuary. You know, and, 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 and that's not normal. I think God's just done some supernatural something within my life. You know, I got rebuked one time by a, a, a Christian brother. And he said that my marriage was a stumbling block because it didn't help anybody. He said, you don't fight with your wife and you're no help to anybody, he said. You know, and I, okay, well, let me go pick a fight or something like that, you know. But really, I can only think of one time in my whole marriage that my wife was angry with me. And uh, I remember Rocky was maybe three, maybe four years old. And, you know, that means that Sarah was two or three and Hosanna was four or five. And you can imagine in that stage of life when everything is chaos, you know. And she sent me to the A&P and I told her I would take Rocky off of her hands, you know. So I took Rocky with me and we went to the store and she's at home going crazy. And, and when I got home, I had this bright idea. I, I said to Rocky, and he was old enough to understand, I said, just wait here for a minute. And I left him in the car. And I, and I grabbed the grocery bags, and I walked into the house, and I was whistling. <laughs> you know, I put the bags up on the thing, and I go into the room. I come back out. I'm, hey, how's it going here? And this and that. And she, she turns around, and she said, how was Rocky? And I just looked at her. And she said, where's Rocky? And then I, I changed my face a little bit, like as if I was realizing something. And she dropped everything and just ran. And I said, uh-oh, you know. <laughs> and I followed her up, and, you know, she's running towards the car, you know, and, I, and I'm close behind, and then she sees Rocky sitting there, and I'm, like, trying not to laugh. And she, she, was, she was a little bit, she was not laughing with me, you know. And that was, in fact, it, it, that was so, such a rare occasion that I forgot about it. And I was uh, talking to my landlord at the time, and he remembered it. So, you know, that's the only reason I can even remember that. But I say that with you to share, to, to say this, is that the reason why, I believe, besides for the grace of God, which is always the reason why, but the reason why I have the relationship I do with Georgia is because we have this unconditional love that is non-negotiable between us and that but what i mean is that we preserve peace within ourselves at all costs and what that means is that we have to eat a lot of things meaning that when something happens one of us discerns that the other one is maybe a little bit annoyed at something or or just had a bad day and and they say something at that point you have a choice i can either you know, defend or dig or whatever. And if I do, it's going to bring it to the next level. And we've had this thing, and I, and I say it's by the grace of God, because in anyone's flesh, you always want to kick against that, you know, kind of a thing. But, but we've always just had this thing that when one of us discerns that the other one is out of it or something, that we just back off. Okay. Back off. And what happens is that you think the best of the person. So I'm just assuming that there's a very good reason why she's saying that. Usually it's me saying it and she's the one that's, you know, dealing with it. But she'll think the best of me and say, well, there's a reason for that. And then she'll let it slide. And what the result of that is there has been this incredible peace within our home. It's become the most treasured thing that we have. It's just this peace, and it's spilled over into our children. It's not perfect, please. We have young kids and chaos in our house all of the time. 
But there's a peace there. There's a unity that's been preserved, but it's something that has to be kept. It doesn't happen by itself. In the church, if we're going to preserve the unity and the bond of peace, then what it requires is that sometimes 10,000 times in a month, we have to step back, think the best of the person in what they're doing or what they're saying or in their motivation and let it go. Because otherwise, what happens is that you begin to see splinters appear within the body of Christ. Well, why did they look at me like that? Why did they say it like that? Why did they, you know, do this? Or why did they, you know, and and all of a sudden these things happen, anger begins to to build up, and that turns into slander. Well, did you see the attitude that this person flipped me or whatever? And then that turns into backbiting. Then that turns into gossip. And you see that there's this underlying thing. A church can look real good on the outside, but once you get underneath it a little bit, you find out everybody really is agitated with each other. And it ruins the witness. And Paul says that we're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit within the bond of peace. Now, I'm not talking about weakness, either in my marriage or within the church. Because there are non-negotiables. There are things that I could do that if I did, my wife would not just let it slide and everything would just go on. And the same thing is true within the church. There are things that happen that must be addressed. There are things that are non-negotiable. And Paul moves into that as we move in to verse 4. The things that are the defining basis for our unity must never be compromised. We can never throw away truth for the sake of purchasing unity. Because that's what the natural tendency is going to be. Especially as the days get darker. Is that, oh, if we want to have unity, then that means we're going to have to just agree on things that are unbiblical. And Paul is not saying that to us here. Part of preserving the unity and the bond of peace is holding fast to those things that make us disciples of Jesus Christ. He tells us that there is one body and one spirit even as you are called in one hope of your calling one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who is above all and through all and in you all he starts there by saying that there is one body it isn't that there are many bodies and that they all have different names. Well, that's First Baptist, and this is Second Presbyterian, and this is Calvary Chapel, and, and that each one of these is a separate body, a separate expression. That's not what Paul is saying. He says that there is one body. And if you are bought by the blood of Christ and you are purchased, the purchased possession of him, then you are a part of the body of Christ. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Methodist or a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal or Calvary Chapel or Baptist or anything else. If you belong to Christ, you are a part of the one body that is the expression within the earth of his person. There is one body. He says there's one spirit. The same Holy Spirit that moved into my heart in the day of my conversion, moved into your heart, and therefore the same Lord that lives in me lives in you. It's the same Spirit that moves and motivates us and that anoints His Word and teaches us and knits us together. There's one hope. The hope of the Christian is redemption through salvation that comes from Christ and eternal life in heaven. That's our hope. Our hope as Christians is not that God somehow gives us a better life or provides a better job or will give me the perfect spouse or the bigger home. That's not our hope that we would have our best life now, as some would put it. 
But our hope as Christians is for that moment that this corruption will put off this corruption and put on incorruption. That moment when this mortal will be swallowed up by immortality and that death will be swallowed up in victory and we will have eternal life in heaven. That's our hope. And there's one hope in the body of Christ, that we would be saved from our sins. There's one Lord. It's not that there's a universal God who is named differently by a different religious system. Well, the Buddhists call him this, and, you know, these people call him this, and the Sikhs call him this, and Christians call him Jesus. And, you know, no, 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 no. There's one Lord, and it's Jesus. There is one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible that was foretold in the Old Testament, that was born of a virgin, that lived a sinless life, that was crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended, and is returning. That's Jesus. One Lord. He says one faith. Speaking of the body of beliefs that we embrace as Christians, it's what Jude was talking about when you read Jude verse 3, and he said that, you, that he's writing to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And there is a body of beliefs that we have been given. We didn't invent it. The church didn't write it down. It was given by the God-breathed Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, and it's the body of truth that makes us Christians, and we contend for the one faith. There's one faith, non-negotiable. There's one baptism. You say, hold on, Pastor Nick, put the brakes on. Are you talking about Holy Spirit baptism? Or are you talking about water baptism? If you're talking about water baptism, are you talking about immersion or sprinkling? Are you talking about infant baptism or adult baptism? Are you talking about baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, or in the name of Jesus only? Let's get clear. What's this one baptism that Paul is talking about? Because that's the baptism that I'm going to contend for. I believe that the baptism that Paul is talking about is what he spoke of in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He says there, For by one Spirit... Are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and we have all been made to drink into one spirit? That we have all been baptized by one spirit into one body. That's not talking about water baptism, nor is it talking about being baptized in the spirit, as they would call it. But at the moment that you are saved... And you give your life to Christ, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit places you in the body of Christ. You are baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ at the moment of your conversion. You are water baptized then later by a man in response to that. You're not baptized by the Spirit then. That's a man water baptizing you as a testimony of your conversion. Acts talks about the coming upon of the Spirit, what we would call the baptism of the Spirit, where God gives you power for ministry. That's not what this is talking about, because John the Baptist said that Jesus was the one that did the baptizing. John the Baptist said, there comes one after me, which is preferred before me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to, to unloose. But when he comes, Jesus, he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. That's not what Paul's talking about. He says, by one Spirit. The Spirit of God has baptized a believer into the body of Christ. And there is one baptism. 
Don't, you know what? One of my favorite things that God did is he saved the thief on the cross. I'm so thankful for the thief on the cross because that obliterates everybody's position on everything. There's only one doctrine in the whole Bible that is not violated by the thief on the cross. You know what it is? Grace. Every other thing. Well, baptism, you have to be saved to be baptized. Oh, yeah, how about the thief on the cross? Oh, you better speak in tongues if you think you're saved. How about the thief on the cross? You just keep going down the list. People do, they take their position. Oh, yeah, what about the thief on the cross? What wisdom of God to just save the thief on the cross, you know? One baptism. And then he says there's one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. He is sovereign, he is sufficient, and he is accessible. Now, these things are the non-negotiable Things that make up the Christian faith. But isn't it amazing how much room these things afford? You know, he doesn't talk to us about how we're to dress or with what dialect we're to speak or with what Bible version we're to read. None of those things are here in this area of non-negotiables. He tells us the things that are. Again, thief on the cross. How did he dress when he got saved? So thus far, he's talked to us about our attitude. He's talked about our endeavor. He's talked about our doctrine as the church. But now he's going to talk about the divide. You say, wait a minute. He's been talking about unity. What do you mean divide? Look at verse 7. He says, but, and the word but there gives to us an indication that he's contrasting with what he has said. Everything so far has been one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, one, 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 one. But here he says, but, so there's a contrast, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. At this point, everything that has been one splinters off into a gazillion. Because though the body is one and the doctrine is one, each one of us are individual. We are separate from the others in our you know, physical frame, in our physical presence. We are separate. And he tells us here, this is the only acceptable division in the body of Christ. And that is this, that we are all different and that's okay. Every one of us is different. God doesn't make two people that look the same, obviously except for twins, you know, but that's the exception, not the rule. We don't look the same. We don't talk the same. We don't sing the same. We don't think the same. There's no two like people in that context. And the same thing is true in our expression of him as Christians. We don't have to act like someone else or talk like someone else or think like someone else, except it be by the rule of Scripture, of course. But there are diversities unto every one of us, he says, is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So he's saying here that every person in the body of Christ is given a gift. A charis, a grace, a gift, he calls it. And he uses this word measure, which indicates for us an object that has capacity like a cup or a jar or a barrel. I think of Jesus in Matthew chapter 25 when he told the parable of the the householder who went on a journey. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 and 15, it says that he gave unto, unto one, he gave five talents, and to another two, and to another one, listen, to every man according to his several ability. 
and straightway he took his journey. He gave to each one according to their several ability. To some he gave five, to some he gave two, and to some he gave one. But the point is that Jesus, the householder, he ascended and he has now given to his people according to their capacity, according to what they're able and capable of of handling, he's given to each one a gift. And he's the one that designed the capacity, and he's the one that designed the operation of what it is that he has called each one of his people to do, and it's not the same as someone else's. But he says to every one of us, which means that there's no exception. There's no person that Christ calls that doesn't have a measure or a a gift or an expression of him that is to be used in some way that he determines. And essentially, what Paul is saying in this verse is that each one of us, at the moment that we're saved, is handed an empty container. Now, follow with me here in verse 8. He says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, and notice this is in parentheses, that he ascended... What is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, I firmly believe that the reason Paul uses this verse out of Psalm 68, verse 18, and this explanation of it is so that we would all get very confused. Because I have no idea why Paul chose this verse and that explanation to communicate what he's trying to say in this context. But here's what I believe. I believe that the point that he is making is that it is because of the earthly ministry and then the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives him the authority to be the supreme head of the church and therefore to give the gifts that he desires to whom he will and also gives him the ability to empower those gifts. Because that's where he's going with this. We've each been given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. A different size, a different shaped container for each of us. We also have a Lord that's over us that has the power and the authority to fill and use those containers to bring glory to his name and to bless his people. And that's where he's going with this. Now follow with me, because he goes from the diversities of us with our measures to now the church's directors in verse 11. But he's going to come back to the containers. So hold on to that thought, and look what he says in verse 11. It says, and he gave, now this is Jesus, giving to the church now some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. He talks to us about the church's directors. Those that he has called to be leaders in the church and he describes for us the offices of those men that he's called to be leaders in his church. He's not talking about the same thing that he was back in verse 7 when he said to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift. But here he's talking about the leaders of his church and he's doing this on purpose. First of all, he says apostles. Now, in the context of the New Testament apostles, 
the 12 that walked with Jesus, that were eyewitnesses of his ministry, that were then anointed and called as the pillars or the foundation of the church in the book of Acts. There are no longer apostles in that context. That group of 12 was unique to who they were and the ministry that God had called them unto. We know that because in Acts chapter 1, when Judas was to be replaced, Peter laid out and he said that if there's going to be someone that's going to fulfill his role, then it has to be someone that was an eyewitness of everything that Jesus did from the beginning as we are. And there are no more people that are that. They can say, I'm an eyewitness of everything that Jesus did. That group was unique in themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul, he talks about the signs of an apostle, that there was, there was a specific sign that was you know, distinct to the apostles, that they were recognized. It was the, the place of their authority. The Apostle Paul said in Ephesians earlier on in the book, he said that we are built, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Again, speaking of the message that the apostles you know, infused into the church at its inception, that is the gospel. And of course, when you look at the book of Revelation, you see the new Jerusalem that's descending, and you see that the 12 foundations, I'm sorry, the 12 gates, have in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So that group was unique. They were distinct. There is no one that can come on the earth today and lay claim to that, that office. Well, I am an apostle after the order of the twelve. You know, that, that doesn't happen. You know. Now, the apostle Paul did say, or I'm sorry, the book of Acts says in Acts chapter 14, verse 14, Barnabas and Paul, who were not of the twelve, that they were called apostles. In Romans chapter 1, verse 5, the apostle Paul says that we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith. So in a different context, there can be someone that maybe holds that office, but typically they would be termed what we would call a missionary. An apostle in this sense is someone who lays a spiritual foundation in an area among a group of people, typically someone that we would call a missionary. I will tell you personally If somebody comes to me and tells me that they are an apostle, immediately I just say, you're weird. Because for for all intents, that title is gone. You know, if if God is giving it to someone and from heaven's perspective, he wants to call him an apostle, fine. But don't come to me and say, I think God's called me an apostle. I will say, I don't believe you. But that's what it is. It's someone who lays a spiritual foundation in an area. He goes on and he says, prophets. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, defines for us what a prophet is in New Testament times. The best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. That's right. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, says that he that prophesies speaks unto men for edification, exhortation, and comfort. That is, they are to build up, to edify, to stir up, to exhort, and to lift up, to comfort. And in the context of the New Testament meaning, a prophet is someone who speaks forth the word of God for the sake of doing those things. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, says that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And in the context of those verses, it stands to reason that this office exists within the church 
today. He goes on and he says, some evangelists. Evangelism is the ministry of winning souls. Men like Billy Graham, Greg Laurie, Bob Coy, and others, they have a gift from God. It's beyond just the ability to preach and to convey a thought, but there's something supernatural that takes place when they speak that God moves within the hearts of unbelievers and draws them to himself. I am not an evangelist. If I steal a message from Billy Graham word for word and preach it and give an altar call, people don't get saved. But if Billy Graham steals a message from me and gives an altar call, thousands of people come forward. And this blows my mind. Because I've experienced this where, you know, I'll I'll share the gospel with someone and I'll lay it out for them in in the most clear and dulcet tones that you can of what it means. Their heart, it seems like they're listening, they're receiving. But I'll say, do you want to pray and accept Jesus? Like, no, I don't think I'm ready. All right, you know, well, if you are, you know, whatever, you know what it is, you know, and I, you know, then it's awkward and weird because, you you know, so you break that off. And and I remember I did this. I I went through with this guy and and then a day later, another Christian brother that I was working with came over to me and he said, hey, that guy just accepted the Lord. And I said, what? I shared with him for like an hour and he didn't, what did you say? He goes, I didn't know what to say. All I said was that we know the Bible is true because when you look at the pyramids, the, 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 the stone that's on the top had less straw in it than the, the, the stone that's on the bottom. And, you know, they had to get their own straw. We know the, and he said, I'm ready to get saved. I need to, this guy, this guy. I'm like, come on. Are you serious? You know. But there is a gift that God gives to certain people. The ability to win souls, and it's supernatural. It has nothing to do with having the right word. It seems like they could just spit and people get saved. You know? And I'm thankful for that because God's the one that does the saving. It isn't men. But God has given evangelists to the church for the sake of winning souls. And then finally, the pastor-teacher. This is not two, this is one. In the Greek language, these two things are linked and combined. It's the shepherd-feeder. God doesn't give someone who's a shepherd, a pastor, but that doesn't give them the ability to teach or feed. Why would someone make someone a shepherd but not give them the ability to feed the flock? Why would God give someone the ability to feed a group of people that he could care less if they die? You know, the two things go together. It's a shepherd feeder, you know. And we understand what that is. And so Paul's defined for us the offices of those that are the leaders in the church. But now he goes on in verse 12 and he tells us their purpose. What is the purpose for the leaders in the church? Verse 12. He says it's for the perfecting of the saints. For the work of the ministry. For the edifying of the body of Christ. For the perfecting of the saints. That means... The complete furnishing of the believer. It means to equip and to prepare them for, he says, the work of the ministry. Now what he's telling us here is a radical concept. Because what he's saying is that it isn't the pastor feeder or the evangelist or the prophet that speaks forth the word. He's not the one that's doing the work of the ministry. It's the equipped matured and fully furnished believer that is doing the work of the ministry. Because what I'm doing here, yes, it's ministry, but this is such a small fraction of it. 
Because the real ministry happens tomorrow when you're at the office or when you're having a conversation with your neighbor or when you're sitting across the table with those family members that you see twice a year or three times a year. Or when you're in your prayer time and God brings someone into your heart or into your mind. Or when you're serving those children, looking into their faces and trying to raise them up in the things of God. That's where the real ministry happens. And so the purpose of what we're doing here, the purpose of the prophet or the evangelist or the teacher or the missionary is to equip people to be able to express Christ to those in their sphere of influence. To equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until, he says, we all come. Now, all right, I have to give you a King James lesson here. Just hold on to all your thoughts and let me break down the English here real quick. He says this, verse 13, you can keep it up there. He says, until we all come, and now skip down to the word unto. Because that's where we're going. Until we come to, that's how you would say the sentence, but he first tells us the vehicle, how we're going to get there. So he says, until we all come, comma, in, this is the car that we're taking, and this is the car, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, comma, unto a perfect man. So where we're going is unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, the way we get there is through the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, is everybody with me there? Our vehicle is the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Now, what are those things? Because this is the car that's going to bring us from where we are to where we need to be in this Christian life. The unity of the faith The knowledge of the Son of God. Well, he just described the unity of the faith in verses 4 through 6. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. It's the body of truth that makes us Christians. It's the doctrine of Christianity. Now, where do we find the doctrine of Christianity? Everyone? The Bible. Oh, boy, you're falling asleep. We need to wrap this up quick. You know, the Bible. All scripture, Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. The doctrine of the Christian faith comes from the Bible. The vehicle that brings us to maturity is, first of all, the understanding and the assimilating of the word of God into our souls. That is why we teach the Bible here at Calvary Chapel. Because this is how maturity is going to happen in the lives of the people. How equipping is going to take place so that they, you in turn, can then give Christ away in your life as you interact with other people, with non-believers. So first of all, the unity of the faith. Second of all, the knowledge of the Son of God. That is your relationship with Jesus. It isn't knowledge of who Jesus is, it's knowing Him. That's what that means. The knowledge of the Son of God is knowing Jesus. And it's going to be through your relationship with Christ that you're going to be brought into that place of maturity. As you know Him, as you learn how to hear His voice, as you learn how to sense His leading, how He leads your step, how He leads your path. 
how he teaches you his word, how you'll be laying there at, at night at the most unexpected time, and all of a sudden he knits together this incredible concept of spiritual truth according to his word in your mind. And yes, Lord, thank you for, for speaking to me. Thank you for helping me. Thank you for giving me insight into how to solve this problem or tackle this issue or deal with my family or whatever it is. And as you know Jesus, and as you absorb his word, what's going to happen is you're going to end up where he says there, unto, the second half of the verse, a perfect man. Now, the word perfect there is not perfect, like sinlessly perfect. In the King James, it means mature. It means complete. It means fully mature. He says, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, notice with me there that that's the second time that Paul has used the word measure. Remember back up in verse 7 when he said, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. And what he's saying to us is that the purpose of church ministry, which is what's happening right now, is that that measure that you've been given is being filled up. You're being matured. You're growing in the things of God. And that measure, that gift, that thing that you've been given to serve Christ with is being empowered as you allow his word, his presence, his people, his life, his ways, as you allow that in, it's filling the measure. It's filling up. We're out of time, but I'm not out of stuff. Are you guys okay for just a couple more minutes? We're almost done. We're, we're getting there quickly. So the purpose of church leaders and church ministry is to equip the saints and to help people discover and then develop the gifts that they have to be used for Christ. And here's the result, and this is where we bring it home now. Is that first of all, this will produce within our lives spiritual maturity. Verse 14. He says that we... No longer is he talking about them, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, but now he's bringing it back to we. It's back to us, that you and I. That we henceforth be no longer children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to be seen, deceived. He says that we should no longer be spiritual children or spiritual toddlers. Now, what does he mean by this? The Bible talks to us about three stages of Christian maturity. There are times that the Bible speaks of those that are babes in Christ. They are those that don't really understand much more than just the basic fundamentals of what makes us saved. The blood of Christ, the cross, the simple elemental things. Paul says the people that don't go any deeper than that are babes in the things of Christ. They're infants. He also talks about them that are of full age or mature or perfect. He uses that word to talk of complete. In Hebrews chapter 5, uh, verse somewhere, it's, it'll come up on the screen. It talks about them and it says that by reason of use, they've used the word of God. And by reason of using it, they've had their senses exercised to discern good and evil. That they've chewed on the things of God. They've wrestled with doctrine. They've allowed scripture to transform their outlook and their mindset. And they've come to a point where they can discern the things that are of God and the things that are not of God based upon the word of God because they've been exercised by his spirit and his word. And those are the people that are mature. 
But here he talks about those that are children. And here's how he describes a spiritual child. He says that they are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive. A spiritual child is known and recognized in that they will believe just about anything that claims to have come from the Bible or that is attached to the name of Jesus. This happens all the time. One of the winds of doctrine that's sweeping through the church right now is this concept that there is no such thing as an eternal hell. That in the end, you know, the love of Christ will win and no matter what a person does in their life or the choices they make or don't make, that everybody ends up in heaven in the end. It's unscriptural, it's unbiblical. But yet there's people that make an interesting case and they pull scriptures out of context and they cause those that are not grounded in spiritual truth to be swayed by these things. They're tossed to and fro. Whoa, whoa, what about, you know, and, and they're moved by it. The holiness movement is coming back around again. This concept that you and I can be sinlessly perfect. That if we walk with Christ long enough, if we put in enough effort and dig in our heels and have enough resolve, that we can be perfect. We don't have to, we will never sin. Paul, at the end of his life, he called himself the chief of sinners. What was wrong with Paul? He didn't have the resolve. He wasn't spiritually mature. No, no, no. We wrestle with the sin nature until we're dead. And we're freed from it. The holiness movement doesn't produce holiness. It produces hypocrites. The concept that a Christian can be possessed by a demon. The reason I'm this way or the reason I have this habit or I'm inclined in this way is because I have a demon. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God moved into your soul and sealed you. If you're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God... God doesn't share space with demons, and demons don't want to be where Jesus Christ lives. If you're sealed by the Spirit of God, you don't have demons. You may have a wrestling match with the flesh, like the rest of us, but you don't have a demon. The Bible doesn't teach such things. This concept of a generational curse, that I'm cursed because, you know, my great aunt was a voodoo priestess, I can't get free from drugs. It's a generational curse. You know, I'm cursed by this thing. By the way, doesn't it say in Exodus that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation? That sounds like a generational curse. I could make a real good scriptural case. But listen, when you read Ezekiel 18, God says this. Listen carefully, Christians. He says, I never want to hear this again. That because our fathers ate sour grapes, therefore our teeth are set on edge. In other words, our teeth are messed up because of what our parents did during their lifetime. God says, I don't want to hear that. All souls are mine. The soul that sins will die. If a man is righteous and he has wicked children, then the wicked child will be judged. If then his child is righteous, then he will be considered righteous because each one will bear his own burden. God says, I don't want to hear it. It's a cop-out. It's an excuse. Slaying in the spirit. That whole thing that swept through the church a few years ago with the prayer of Jabez. You know, that this is the key. Put it on a bracelet. Put it on the visor in your car. Pray it ten times a day because God will hear when you pray that prayer. Listen, read your Bibles. There's no magic set of words that's going to open the door of blessing within your lives. 
We're so out of time. Verse 15, steady growth. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. That there would be a steady growth. There is no such thing as stagnant in the Christian life. You are either growing or you are backsliding. There's no such thing as neutral. Paul says we should grow. And then finally, spiritual health and fruitfulness in the whole body at large will be the third result of the church operating the way it's supposed to. Verse 16, he says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together. That means organized compactly. Now, imagine again those 6,000 parts, you and I, a part of Christ's body, and he says that we're to be organized compactly. Fitly joined together, and then he says compacted, and that word in the Greek means driven together. You ever seen a trash compactor? It puts the trash in, and then it makes something this big, about that big. And he says that that's the way that we're to be with one another, that we're to be so driven together by the love of Christ and by the unity that we have in his spirit and in his word, that there's this driven together, this compactedness. And how is that done? He says, by that which every joint supplies did you hear that every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part you see that word again this third time it's used that word measure and as each measure is filled up and then poured out it causes it says it maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. That the church will grow. The church will be healthy. The church will grow. There will be Christian maturity because of these things. Three times Paul uses that word measure. In verse 7, you're given this empty cup. It's a gift. It's tailored to you specifically. In verse 13, it's filled as you are edified and instructed in God's word and in God's ways. And then in verse 16, that thing, that expression that only you carry, that thing that only you have, is then poured out and used to be a blessing and a source of encouragement and edification for others. And it causes the whole church to be healthy and fruitful. Well, I have to stop now, even though I really thought I'd be done on time. I'm such an amateur. Please pray for me. If you belong to Christ, you've been given a measure. And as you're sitting here right now, that measure is being filled. You're being developed. And God wants to use you to help someone else grow closer to him. But in order for that to happen, you must be growing closer to him. The spiritual health of the whole body is dependent upon the spiritual health of each member, each person. It isn't the leadership. It's the membership. And part of our response to what Christ has done in our lives is that we're to be a part of a healthy church with an attitude of humility, with an endeavor to preserve unity, to remain under the banner of his truth, to be aware of the calling that he's placed upon our lives, to be situated in a place where we can be fed, anchored, and growing, and with our lives in a position to bless and edify others essential for our own spiritual health and for the health of the church of Christ at large. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight.
And we pray, Lord, that you would take the things that we've heard and that they would impact the, the way that we look at each other and the way that we view church. Please help us. Give us wisdom. And I pray that you'd strengthen us. Help us to walk worthy of this walk, this call that you've called us into. We can do nothing on our own, Lord. I pray for a fresh filling with your spirit for each person here. And that you'd use us for your glory. We just thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.